The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. As we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we are beginning a new section of this book. For several chapters now, Paul has been dealing with a significant problem in the church in Corinth. Seems that while Paul was in Ephesus, a delegation came from that church, probably with a letter in hand, saying, hey, we have a bunch of issues that we need you to address, Paul. And for the first several chapters, he's been addressing the first issue, a main significant one, the problem of division amongst the body. As we come to chapter 5, now he moves on to the next one. And there is a change here, but it's not a change that is, that is completely abrupt. There, there are some connections. There is a similar attitudinal problem between chapter 4, the issue of division, and chapter 5, the, the different issue that we face today. It shows up here dressed in some different clothes, causing a different crisis, but it's similar. The words arrogant and boasting show up again here in this chapter. So Paul's still dealing with the same kind of church. It just is affecting differently now. It's it's showing itself differently in its attitude towards a significant public sin in the midst of the church. And there is a great big public sin mentioned in this passage. And it is really sin. And it really isn't the point. This is not fundamentally about the great big public sin mentioned at the very beginning of the chapter. So we need to be careful not to get misled. Paul's greatest concern is with the church and its response, its attitude towards sin in its midst. So that needs to be our greatest concern this morning too. How do we deal with, how do we feel about, how do we respond to sin in the midst of the church? What do we do with it? How do we respond to a person of this sort? We'll be very careful to define what this sort is. Our emphasis must not be allowed to fall on on the sinning individual, but it must rest on the whole church. We must be careful how we judge the sinner and not become judgmental in dealing with sinners. There's going to be a very fine balance there. And, And don't we commonly fall down different sides of that balance? It's very easy to slip off either side of that. There are a whole bunch of Christians and a whole bunch of churches that have just completely given up the idea of judging sin altogether, thinking that it's wrong. And and if that's you, the repeated use of the word judge is going to be a problem this morning when Paul writes it to the church and says half a dozen times, judge. And a whole bunch of other related concepts too. But it's common for those who, who... don't fall on that side, it's common to fall off the other side and become, boy, just harsh. There's a judgmentalism, a a very, uh, almost, I would say, angry attitude that, that is present in so many people and so many churches that pride themselves on righteousness and holiness. We can't fall off that side either, as, as we'll see from the text There'll be a few things that will confront that too. So I think both sides of this, we will have things to learn from this passage this morning in how we deal with sin in the midst of the church. That's my hope this morning, that we would, would see this and that God would use it to grow us as a people towards becoming 
more accurately reflecting the, the cleansed people that God has made us to be. This pure, spotless bride of Christ that, that Christ is laboring to make us His people. So may He use the passage for that this morning. I'm going to read the, the passage, the whole chapter, all chapter 5. It's only 13 verses long. So we're going to look at this morning. I'm going to read it and then pass back through to make sure we understand some of the details before drawing out a couple of observations. This is 1 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body... I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all, meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. 1 Corinthians 5. This passage breaks into into three sections. The first section and the last section have a number of similarities. They are essentially about what the, the problem is and the solution to it. And the center section gets at some of the theological background behind it. So we need to begin with looking at a combination of the first and last section to figure out what it is exactly we're talking about and what we aren't talking about. Who we have in view and who we don't have in view. 1 to 5 lays out the basic problems and solutions. And there are, there are two of them. There's a, there's a person and there's the whole people. Both are problems and he has a solution for both of them. So there is a person here, and we need to be very clear what kind of person we're talking about. This is a person we have in view here who is among them. There is someone among you that he's heard about. This is a person in the church. So it's not a visitor to the church. It's not someone out there in the world at large as he clarifies in verses 9 to 13, clarifying something they had deliberately misunderstood before. He is not talking about how we interact with the world. He's talking about someone in the church. Specifically, verse 11, someone who bears the name of brother. 
So this is someone who says, I am a Christian, and I am one of you. And we would say, you are one of us. There is a connection here. There is an insider. Claims to be a Christian. He's a part of the church. Now, did they have an official membership role on which he had signed his name? I don't know. But everybody knew, that guy is one of us. He would say, I'm in. And at the same time, at the very same time, is engaged with and holding to a very public sin. And the grammar indicates this is an ongoing thing. A man has his father's wife, his stepmother. Has, that's euphemistic. He has his father's wife in an ongoing sense and is sitting right there in the fourth row. This is just fine. I'm a Christian. I'm one of you. That's a problem. Paul kind of shakes them. If the pagan world says that's a problem, you should realize that's a problem. But you're just fine. I can't believe, verse 2, you are arrogant about it. Wow. He's shocked. So, to be clear, who we're dealing with here, this is not a visitor to the church. It's not even a person who claims to be a Christian but is kind of still checking things out, sort of on the outside. This is someone who's on the inside and has embraced a sin that is very public. And as the lists in 11 and 12 indicate, 10 and 11 indicate, it's not only this type of sin, not only sexual morality that Paul has in view here. It's a kind of sin that works like leaven. That just takes a little bit and it gets into and then influences the whole community. This is a a very public thing that runs. So, there's a lot of discernment left in that because the lists lists aren't exhaustive. They're not even identical if you look at them closely. They have different things, back-to-back verses. So there's discernment needed in this. There's wisdom needed in this. But, But the basic view, an insider who holds to public sin that runs and has a corruptive influence on the body. I can't believe you're embracing it. This is the problem. And their response to it is a problem. Should you not, he says, verse 2, should you not rather mourn? He's dealing with arrogant people. Verse 6, boasting people, just like he said four times in the previous chapter. What are they arrogant about? What are they boasting about? Their tolerance of the sin. Their acceptance of people from different perspectives and with different backgrounds. Hey, look look how all-encompassing and embracing we are. There's, There's something wrong here, says Paul. Ought you not rather to mourn over this? Verse 2. And that mourning would lead to something. If you have the NAS, you you have a little bit of an advantage here. And this is another little plug for studying with two English translations side by side. If you have the NAS or even the NIV will help a little bit here too. You see an important connection in verse 2. Ought you not rather to mourn so that... They're connected. So that this one would be removed from your midst. We'll work on a little bit of why that connection is. But notice at this point that there is a connection. So that. 
the attitude of mourning would lead to a, a response, an action. They're not two entirely distinct things. An attitude leads to an action. That's what should characterize the church. Ought you not rather to mourn that this one would be removed from you? It should characterize them. It is what characterizes Paul, even though he's not bodily present. Can't come right yet, but he's heard about this. And he writes them and says, I've already passed judgment. And I command you now, here's what you are to do. This is the apostle exercising great authority over the church, over us, the church. He doesn't have to be bodily present for his word to carry authority. He says, I will come in the power of God, in the power of the Lord Jesus. I will come in letter and I instruct you what you are to do to the church. That's us. What are they to do? Well, verse 5. He has made a decision that they are to carry out. We've already seen a little bit about what he gets at in verse 2. Remove them. Verse 11, don't associate with one such as this. In 5, he says the same thing and adds something very important. He adds the purpose of this judgment. And notice this, it is not punishment. It is not punishment. It is not vindictive. It's not not attempting to afflict someone with some pain so that they'll shape up. It's not. Look at this closely. It's a two-part sentence here in verse 5. First part, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That's the first part. Send him. He's not talking about personally give him to Satan. Satan's not omnipresent. He's not going to be everywhere. He means give them, give this person into the realm of Satan. Out of the realm where Christ is king into the realm where Satan reigns. Send him out of the church that the destruction of the flesh might happen. Which is not about death. Paul does not envision his death. And we can tell by the contrast with the second half of the sentence. For the destruction of the flesh, second half, so that his spirit might be saved in the last day. The contrast is flesh versus spirit. This is a very typical Pauline, of Paul, Pauline contrast. The flesh is looking at a person through his fallenness and the spirit is looking at a person through his regenerate nature, his born-again nature. He says... Our goal here in this, to send him out there, is that this sinful flesh, this fallenness, might be destroyed, oh we hope, so that it would lead to his salvation. It's redemptive. There's hope. There's a saving purpose in this, not a punishing purpose. We need to see this. That his spirit might be saved. Now, Is this man a Christian? I don't know. We said in chapter 3, beginning of chapter 3, Christians, in fact, much of the church in Corinth, Christians can live lives significantly influenced and controlled by the flesh. That's the the point of the first few verses of chapter 3. That's clearly possible. 
And of course, non-Christians always live like that. So it's hard to tell. This man who is clearly controlled by and under the strong influence of the flesh, is he a Christian or not? I don't know. But we send him out there to where the, the, the wonderful tutor, Satan, who hates him, who seeks only to kill and destroy him, if this man is a Christian and we put him under the tutelage of Satan in that realm, he'll work that off. He'll, he'll hurt him and afflict him and, and this man will come to his senses like the prodigal son and say, what am I doing in this pig pen? And turn and go back. Paul's saying here at the end of this process with this man in this state, our hope is that we send him out there and he is in fact a prodigal son, we hope, we don't know, and that the flesh will be cut away from him and he'll come back and be saved. That's the hope, the purpose, that he might be saved. It is not a punishment born from anger. And it is certainly not acceptance born from tolerance of evil. Something in the middle. An action that aims for His great eternal good. And comes from what? Mourning. Not pride. It comes from mourning. This is what Paul instructs the community to do and we have to do it because of what God has made us to be. This is what 6-8 to eight gets at. Right there in the middle of the chapter. If you just look at the chapter, even just physically, 13 verses, what's in the middle? Verse 7. And if you look at verse 7, you say, yep, that's, that actually is the heart of this matter. 6 to 8, uh, it gives us kind of the, the step back view of what's behind this. What's the, the theological perspective behind this? He says, we have to do this because of what God has made us to be. And he uses an analogy of, of leaven and unleavened bread, and ties it into some Old Testament history. You may recall when we preached through the book of Deuteronomy, we were several times in this chapter, because there are several things in Deuteronomy that connected this. Paul evidently had his quiet time that morning in the book of Deuteronomy, and then wrote chapter 5, because there are about three references to Deuteronomy here, this being one of them. One of the great feasts of Israel was the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which happened at the time of the Passover which was about how God had acted through the slaying of a lamb to deliver His people out of bondage. Can you get the connections there? To deliver them out of bondage when the blood of this lamb was over their house and the wrath of God passed over, passed over, passed over them. And they came out eating unleavened bread. And so every year to remember God's deliverance, Moses, God through Moses, proscribed to them sacrifice at Passover and then cleanse out all the leaven for seven full days. Deuteronomy 16.4 There will be no leaven found in your, in your whole country, in all of the land, for seven days. The perfect number of fullness in the Old Testament. Moses is saying, the sacrifice liberates you and now live without any of this leaven that... What does leaven do? It ferments and changes. It breaks down sugar. I'm not a chemist, but I know that it breaks down sugar and it causes bread to rise. The chemical reaction, it alters 
So cleanse out all that alters the pure grain for seven full days, the fullness. That's what Moses is saying and Paul says, you know, that's us, the church. That's us. We are to cleanse out the leaven, verse 7, because we are already unleavened. We've been set free from this. So live it. That's what he says. That's essentially the text. Nine and following we've already touched on a little bit. Paul deals with their deliberate twisting of his first letter. What the text is about, an attitude in the church that, that shapes how we deal with sin in the church of this particular sort. Resting on what we, the church, have been made to be by the sacrifice of the Lamb. It's the basic text. I'm going to now unpack it a little further by making two observations. So here's the first one, which gets at the the attitude and action. Before I start, this is kind of like the main thrust of it, but I think the second point, I hope... But the second point we see expands a little bit beyond just this context and should shape a lot of how we think of ourselves and think of this body. The first point is much more closely what Paul's after here. We should mourn at seeing open sin in the church and then act to remove it. I'm going to work on remove it in two different ways. We should mourn at seeing open sin in the church. And that mourning then should lead us, the connection should lead us to action that seeks to remove the sin, both from the church and also from the person, him or herself, for his good. Obviously, mourning comes right at verse 2. Ought you not rather to mourn? Think about what mourning is. Sorrow. Sadness, grief, heart hurt. Where do we mourn? In situations of loss, in situations of death, in situations of tragedy, often in things that look impossible to reverse. You don't mourn that you didn't make that light and it turned red on you. Maybe you're irritated or a little bit disappointed, but you don't. You mourn, grieved, saddened, heartbroken in situations that look desperate and awful, and there's a certain bit of, of death and loss in them. Ought you not look at this man and be grieved? If we would understand all that he said up to this point. And we had an attitude like Christ, humble, laid down our own pride and believed this gospel and all that it is about. And we saw somebody say, I don't care, and walk away from that. Wouldn't we not be grieved by it? Grieved so that if we could possibly do anything to reverse that, we would. where the rest of verse 2 takes us. Mourn so that you'll remove this man, which right off to a lot of us sounds like, oh, 
I thought we were sad. And now you're going to whack him? No, 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 no. It's not about punishment. It's the only God-proscribed action that might perhaps possibly save him. Which is our goal. More, so that you remove him. The Corinthians thought they knew better than that. That's no way. What we should do is, is leave him here and, and let him just carry on with that. That would be the kind and loving and gracious thing to do. How many churches and how many Christians today think like that? Tons. Erroneously. Now read down through the rest of this chapter and see all of this language about send him out, deliver him to Satan, cleanse out the old leaven. Don't associate with him. Don't associate with him. says it twice. Don't even eat with such a one. Purge him. Judge the church. Oh, no, 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 no. I know better than the Bible. I know better than Paul. That's wrong. That's unloving. That's ungracious. How many Christians and how many churches say that? Erroneously. The only way you can say that is if you have not accurately grappled with the gravity and tragedy of sin in the body and what sin does to a person. Ought we not mourn to see the loss of a man or woman who spurns his or her hope in Christ and turns instead and openly embraces sin and sells the treasure of living under the reign of the King Jesus and embraces the the false hope of living in the kingdom of Satan. He willingly embraces that by by holding on to the sin. There's a loss there. Oh! What a tragedy if that embracing proves final. We should mourn. And we should mourn when we see the loss that the body suffers if that is allowed to stay in and like leaven work all through countless other people. We should mourn to see families destroyed by parents, by moms, by dads who the church does not stand up to. We should mourn we see friends, circles of friends, influence into bitterness. And the root of bitterness that defiles many, says Hebrews, spawns and grows and spreads. We should mourn at that. We should mourn when we see people in the church whose spiritual lights go out as they are influenced to follow sin. Because the church would not set one aside and let him leaven everyone else. We should mourn when we see what happens to the lost world when the church becomes like that. Get this straight. We often say, what kind of a testimony, some of us say, what kind of a testimony would it be to the lost world out there if we were to deal so harshly with people in the church? First of all, it's not harsh. But second of all, get that thinking ordered properly. It'll hurt the lost world to not deal with sin like this in the church. Think about, just think about this particular example. 
What does the pagan world think as it looks at the church with this guy sitting in the fourth row? Holy smokes, that's off. And they tolerate that? Think about that. We follow a a God of holiness and righteousness who would send His own Son to the cross to die for sin, and we don't have a problem with that. If the world has a higher moral standard than the church, something's wrong. Oftentimes that's not the case, though. But the world is still hurt when the church tolerates sin because of the witness that we give, but also, get this, the kingdom of God is about power. Chapter 4, verse 20. Until God says they have no concern for me or my standards and steps back. And then there is no power in the church and no influence from the church on the world. Because God grieved has withdrawn. So a light that was intended to shine is covered. And there is no shining and there is no witness and there is no power in the witness. And the world is hurt by all of that. And furthermore, one significant, wonderful thing that we have, and this is a little bit emotional, touchy-feely sort of, rather than quantifiable, that you hear somebody sing the song like was just sung, How Beautiful, and it's sung beautifully. How beautiful, how beautiful the church. How sweet, how pure, how holy, how enticing, how beautiful. With a great big ink blot in the fourth row. See the contrast? Now, we're all ink blots in a way. Paul, the Bible, really clear that we all sin. And he's also really clear that we're not all to remove all of us. That's nonsense. There's a difference here. There's a line. I said there's discernment here. We got some clues from these verses of the list and the leaven that works through and corrupts. We have some clues, but there is room for discernment where we need to decide is, you know, what qualifies here? Granted, but there is a difference. And when, and when the church says we are to be the beautiful bride of Christ and He has died for us to make us pure and spotless and holy and we have zero concern whatsoever for that, it mars the whole thing. And part of what is, is honoring to God and attractive to the world is there's a refuge, there's a haven until we foul it up. There is a a need for us, for our witness to the world, not just for the good of the person, not just for the good of other Christians, the church, but for the good of the world to take care of the church. And lastly, we should be mourning as we see how the honor of God is cast down. His standards, His commands that we overlook. He made us to be a kingdom of priests, a a holy nation. And when we have no concern for that, He is dishonored. All of this ought we not rather to mourn if we think about what's at stake here. 
and mourning, seeing what was at stake, then we would be moved to act to remedy the problem. Which is what he says in verse 5. It's, it's a remedy. It's remedial. It's hope-driven, healing-focused. It's not a punishment. That his flesh may be destroyed so that his spirit may be saved. We must then act. How? What does that mean? Well, repeatedly throughout here, remove him. Send him, deliver him to Satan. Cleansing out leaven. Don't associate with, don't even eat with. Purge. The quote from Deuteronomy again. Clearly, this action is a separation of fellowship. Now again, not of every person who sins, that would be all of us separating from all of us. But in some way, with discernment we say there's something that's public, that's known, that's corrosive. Leaven, it spreads. Affects the whole lump with just a little bit. We don't go hunting. We're not, we're not police investigating. But when something appears and is then the problem, I am a Christian. I am one of you. And I will hold to this. It's just fine. Those two things, the church has to say, no. You have to let go of one or the other. But you can't hold both of those. And as long as you do, we separate not even eat with such a one. Fellowship is broken. Now, practically what that means is I, I say to people, when I have been in this situation, and it is not often, I say to people, I'm, I'm willing to get together anytime, any place to talk about this issue. But we are not going to play golf together as if there's nothing going on. That's the breaking of Fellowship. This is sometimes called church discipline. But we have to be very careful in acknowledging this is only a piece of church discipline. This is not the whole picture. I preached a sermon on church discipline when we were preaching through Deuteronomy. If you want to look at that, it's, it's on the webpage. You can, you can find it in there. I think it was somewhere in the, in the neighborhood of the 20s, chapters 20-something. You can find it on the website and list it if you want to. But I pointed out there that we should think of church discipline as a pyramid that all of us are always engaged in. A church seeking to help one another grow in discipline. Confronting, encouraging, exhorting. And as the pyramid gets smaller, we rise up to the top. At the very top, at the very last point is where Paul is. We're, we're done. Send him out. We've reasoned through this. We've tried to, to discuss it with him. It's over. We send him out in the hopes that here at the end, we can't talk him out of this anymore. We're going to have to let Satan work it out of him. So we only have a little piece of church discipline. If you just think of this is the whole thing, you'll, you'll misunderstand something. It's a large process. And along the process, we have much Patience, Matthew 18 gives us some good guidance on this. Going with a, a, 
a growing number of people, just one-on-one first, then with someone else, maybe then with some elders. It grows in the, the level and the type of discussion as you're interacting with someone. There's much patience. There's much discernment. There is much dealing in gentleness with people as, the, as they try to figure out what they believe, what they actually hold to. You know, the, the problem is, I'm a Christian, I'm one of you, and I'm holding to this sin. Well, oftentimes you'll find as you talk, am I a Christian or not? I don't really know. Oh, do I really want to do this or not? I don't really know. Patience. Patience. We, we come to a point of decision when the person says, yes, I know, and yes, I know. Then, yes, we know. We... The five and a half years I've been there, we've, we've never come to this final stage in this church. I've been a part of it two or three times in other churches. It is not extremely common. And so if you're thinking, as, as I've had people in, in preaching on this in Deuteronomy, I've had people ask me with you know, names and situations, how come you haven't disciplined so-and-so? And it becomes clear to me that we're not, I have not communicated this clearly. So-and-so lost so-and-so's temper or lashed out at somebody or did something mean. or Yeah. And they have a, a consistent problem with that. Uh-huh. Yeah. And they know it. And to some degree, you know, they're trying to overcome it. This does not apply. You see the difference? It's when they're saying, that's totally fine and right. That's when we have a problem. And even if someone is, that's totally fine and right. On Monday, patience, let's wait till next Monday. Or a month from now, Monday, to see how they respond then as we pray and plead with them. Patience. At the end of the day, what we have to acknowledge here is that there is a time when we say, we set this person aside. And that comes from, verse 2, mourning. Of seeing what is at stake. And so I think that for us as a church, the thing that, that we need to most settle on here in this first point is the whole question of mourning. Because probably we're more prone to fall off one side or the other thinking that the compassionate kind thing to do is overlook it all or indignant at sin and wanting to frankly hammer somebody do you fall off one side or the other may God grow you in mourning over open sin that you see in the church that you see in your own life may he grow that in you and one way he may do that is tied to the second point. I'm going to move to that. The second observation then, verses 6 to 8. I'm going to state it in a sentence of, of kind of command and position, which is sort of the, the tug in verse 7 there. We, the church, must strive to become what we have already become. 
in the gospel. And if that sounds circular, it's intended to be. We, the church, must strive to become what we have already become in the gospel. We have something. We've been made to be something. So we must strive to be it or, or to remain it, as the case may be. It's circular, but it comes right out of 6 through 8, especially verse 7. Verse 6, he mentions the problem again. You're boasting and it's not good. And then he moves to an analogy that would have been plain as day, common in all of life, and uses that to connect to the Old Testament, as we, as we saw. The illustration of, of leaven. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? We're talking about dough, a lump of dough. You don't need a lot. You just need a little bit, and it affects the whole batch. Well, that's obvious, and that's a problem because we are supposed to be unleavened. And it's a little bit like what what he's getting at is a little bit of the, the problem of talking about someone being sort of pregnant. There isn't a category. If you're a little bit pregnant, you're pregnant. If you're a little bit leavened, you're leavened. Try putting just a little bit of leaven in a lump of dough and the whole thing will rise. It might rise irregularly, but you can't, just a little bit, you can't do that. We are to be unleavened, pure, clean. This quickly moves to talk about what we are, our our identity since we've been saved. Verse 7, here's a command. Look at this sentence, a command and a statement of identity. Same sentence. Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump. That's the command that connects to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which we talked about. He's saying, do this, what was done every year at the time of the Passover. Do that. Get rid of it as you really are unleavened. Do that because you are that. Paul talks like this all the time. You've been made something, now live it. Walk in it. Embrace your calling. Walk in a manner worthy of what He has made you to be. This is, this is very much like Paul. He does this all the time. We have become a new lump with the, the leaven cleansed out of us, purified. So live like that. When do we become that? Boy, it's just like Paul just can talk about nothing but Christ and Him crucified. Here it is, right in the middle of this discussion, right in the middle of it, and he brings up, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. What does he root all of this in? The gospel. The gospel. You were made a pure lump, loaf. You were made unleavened when the sacrifice died. Now, With that now freshly on your mind, live unleavened, cleanse that out, and let us celebrate, verse 8. Let us celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven of malice and evil. That's what we cleanse out. That was removed off of us, so remove it off of you. Make war on it. And celebrate now as a clean, redeemed people. 
Celebrate with the, the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Live in that beautiful bride. Live in that cleansed realm. Live pure and spotless and holy and clinging to righteousness because it is your joy. It is a celebration of a festival. That's what it would be for you. Get rid of the malice and evil. Who wants to live with malice and evil? Remove it. Because that's what you've been made to be. And what God is after in you. It's, it's a circle, yes. But you see how the circle feeds itself. You act, and as you cleanse it out, you become a little more of what God made you to be. You act by His power that's committed to you to make you that. It, it, it goes around. He has done something marvelous to us. And if you think about that, and you, you can get your mind around it, this is where... Again, the, the touchy-feely sort of part comes in. If you can get your mind around what it would be like to be a part, actually what it one day will be like, to be a part of an absolutely pure, spotless bride. And you can kind of see that with your mind's eye and realize that's what God is at work in me now. As Ephesians 5 says, Christ has has died to, to do this in me, that would be wonderful. And oh, it's compromised by this sin. Oh. It's hindered in this one's life, that a person that I care about. And no one else out there will see it because it's been blocked by this sin. Oh, and some sorrow will rise in you. But only if you see this as awesome and glorious and then compromised and lost. So you have to feed your mind with what God has done and what He means for us to be and how beautiful that is. And then the sin becomes mournful. And the sin becomes mournful not just in that great big public sense, but it becomes mournful in me every day. This is where I think we should think about 6, 7, and 8 beyond this context. Because it's not just the great big significant, visible, open sin that compromises the beauty of that kingdom. Every bit of the flesh that holds me compromises the beauty of that kingdom. In my experience right now, in your experience as I interact with you and bless you or don't, as I'm gripped by the flesh... The flesh is a reality in me, too. Now, in some cases, like this guy, perhaps, it's great big significant. But it's reality in my life. And I should not just think about him. I should think about me and seek to make war on my flesh, as should you.
we have been made to be a pure people. And this isn't just about Him. It's about all of us. So let me make a couple of suggestions here at the end. Let me encourage you with three things. Conceptualize sin as a community enemy and as a personal one. It compromises all of us and it compromises me. It's present in all of us and it's present in me. And it's my enemy. You're not my enemy. Sin is my enemy. Sin is our enemy. So we are on the same side when we notice my sin. This is important because oftentimes if you notice my sin, I have a feeling that you're not on my side. Conceptualize sin as community and your personal enemy. And the person who points it out to you is your ally, not your enemy. Sin is your enemy. Think of it like that. Mourn then over your enemy's effectiveness in your life. Which is the second thing I ask you to consider. Ask God to grow sorrow over sin in the place of indignation or apathy. Because I can say, ought we not rather to mourn, but that does not create sorrow. I can list some of the reasons that it might be appropriate to mourn. That does not create the feeling of sorrow. So ask God to create the feeling of grief over sin, your enemies, effectiveness in you and in others. And third, rest in your identity in Christ He has bought you. The Lamb has been sacrificed. End of verse 7. He has bought you. He owns you. He's adopted you. You stand in grace with Him. And you are simultaneously already in His eyes holy. And fighting, I hope, like mad to become holy. Both. There's a circle. So rest in your identity and then enlist others as allies in that fight. Because sin is your enemy and you're grieved over what it does to you and to others, to the world out there and to God's honor. Conceptualize sin as an enemy. Ask God to grow you in sorrow over it and rest in your identity as you fight it like mad. We have been made to be a holy people and He means us to strive to be a holy people with our minds set on Christ, the Passover Lamb crucified. Let me pray. Father, would you take us, your children, and mature us? 
And I pray especially that you would grow each of us in grief, in sorrow over sin. Some of us, Lord, struggle with indignation and some struggle with apathy. Too easily accepting of things or too easily angered by them. And I pray, refine us. Give us the heart of Jesus who spoke to sin, addressed it, confronted it, was clear about it, and refused to allow His disciples to call down fire from heaven on people who rejected Him. You will judge one day in the end, but that day is not now. Give us grace to be grieved over sin and to hold out our, our hearts, really. To hold out our hearts in hope for the salvation of those we know around us who are trapped in sin and of those that we don't know who are around us and those we don't know who are far away from us, all plagued by sin, bound up in death. Give us grieving, mourning hearts over that. Please. And refine us, your people, to be a more accurate representation of your holiness here on the earth. I pray this in Christ's name, our sacrifice slain. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.